Amen. I'll try that again. Amen. Amen. And uh, I just want to encourage Matt, um, keep that song around. Um, I'm, I'm working through the idea of a series through the first uh, five chapters of Revelation. Uh, the, the teen Sunday school class and I are going through that right now and uh, thinking of that in the future. And I think that will really fit well when we get into chapters four and five, so I appreciate that. Um, thanks, Pat, for filling in. Appreciate that. Um, also, uh, just so we're aware before I get into the other things that we have to do, uh, today's uh, Davey's last Sunday with us for uh, some time as he's heading out to um, California. And uh, we uh, will be praying that uh, God will be with you and uh, grateful uh, for uh, you serving our country. And, and thanks. So it's good. Um, kids, ages three through uh, first grade, you can go back to children's worship if you would like to do that, and your parents are okay with that. The rest of us, if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, actually I feel like I had a whole list of announcements before we got into the sermon, sorry about that. Hebrews 7, we'll begin reading in verse 23. Um. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are so great. Thank you for the love that you've shown us. Thank you for the life that you've given us. Thank you for your word. We pray, our God, that you will speak to us from your word, that you will transform our lives. We pray for our children and children's worship, that you will grant to them the grace that they need, that they may come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And Father, for every person here, I just beg that you would allow us to leave the same people that walked in, but that, will we, that we will have undergone a transformation by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to look to start out. Verse 28 really becomes the, the central focal point of this message. And so I want to ask you to just kind of look there for just a moment, and let's, let's notice the emphasis that he's trying to make. In, in a very real sense, it's, it's the focal point of the entire chapter 7. So we look at verse 28, and the first thing I want you to notice is the juxtaposition that uh, the author of Hebrews puts between the weak men uh, who were appointed as high priests. He says, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, and that's juxtaposed to, but the word of the oath appoints uh, a son who's made perfect. And so he's, he's laying out for us this, this, this difference that, that you've got the, the weak men who are high priests and you have the perfect son who is the ultimate high priest and is drawing our attention to Jesus as that, 
that perfect high priest. The whole chapter 7 has, has been about Jesus as the high priest. And, and this, this is, if you will, the, both the climax and the summary of chapter 7. In, in the first three verses of chapter 7, we saw that Jesus is the prototype of the high priest. That even the prototype of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was, was greater than the Levitical priests, and we were able to see that. But Jesus is the prototype that, that uh, if you will, Melchizedek is the shadow of. So the, the light is standing behind Jesus, and it, and it hits him, and it, and it falls upon the wall in a shadow, and that's Melchizedek. And that's the greatest of the high priest is just a shadow of Jesus. And we saw in verses 4 through 10 that Jesus deserves our worship as, as the author talks about the fact that, that tithes were paid by the Levitical priests to the Melchizedek priesthood through Abraham. And that reminder that you give tithes as, as an act of giving of ourselves in worship. And then last week as we were looking at verses 11 through 22, we saw that Jesus gives real hope. A real and a complete hope. A, a, a hope that, that, that isn't just wishful thinking, but is, is in fact real and it exists and it's, it's what our hearts are set upon. And this week, we begin to see that Jesus is the perfect high priest. Now, oftentimes as I preach, what I will preach on is, is some of the, the practical implications of a particular proposition that we find in Scripture. Uh, those who've been through the classes I teach on preaching know I, I speak, preach the imperative. Um, and that is, what is God calling on us to do? What is he wanting us to, to do? I was told years ago uh, the difference between teaching and preaching. Now, when you're teaching a class, you want to answer the question as though the class is asking you, what do you want us to know? And when you're preaching, you want to answer the question, what do you want us to do? And so trying to bring that, and, 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 I, and I say all that to tell you, that's not what I'm going to do today. Because that's not really what this passage is doing. There is an, an, uh, a, a call for action, but the call really is trust. As this passage is really going to lay out for us three proofs that Jesus is the perfect high priest. And what I want us to do is we look at each of these proofs to become more convinced in our mind that he is the perfect high priest so that in our will, we will choose to believe it and we'll trust him. So that's where our, our pathway is going to go. Let's look at these three proofs. The first of which is that Jesus is the, the perfect high priest because he remains forever, verses 23 through 25. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That he remains forever. Remember, this letter is written to Jewish believers and the Jewish believers were aware of just how vital the high priest was. They knew that they had to have a priest because they were very much aware of their own personal sin. They recognized that they violated the law of God. They recognized that in and of themselves they were not able to stand before God. They knew that they always needed a mediator and an intercessor between them and God. They were aware of that because they were also aware of the holiness of God, not just their own sin, but they recognized the perfect holiness of God. And they said, I, I can't go to him on my own. And they, they were knowing that and, and certain of that. 
But the fact that those priests died also revealed something else to them. The fact that the priests died revealed to them that the priests, though they were functioning as, as an intermediary between them and God, were still sinful people. We read in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. They knew that the fact that these priests would die. This priest who is, who is in this, this holy office, who is doing these, these holy rites, who are interceding on behalf of these sinful people, who are offering these sacrifices for themselves and for the people, in the end, they too were sinful people. And they had to taste death because all have sinned. And that was a part of, of what they had to face. There were many priests because of death. But there's only one Jesus. Because he conquered death. We look at this, this passage and it says that he continued, verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, continues there are a couple words that are taught uh, new Greek students uh, very early, very first vocabulary words, um, and one of them is meno. Okay, I'm sure that uh, Jim is going, oh, I remember meno, <laughs> it comes up, and one of the reasons is because it's the perfect form, and so you learn that verb because it, it fits all the paradigms exactly the way that it's supposed to, and so, so you learn meno, and meno means to remain, okay, which is easy to remember because it kind of sounds that way, right? And so I, I, I get that. So meno is to remain. And that's the word that's, that's translated here as continues. That he continues, that he remains. But it's, it's more than just remains when, when we're looking at it in this place. Um, for, for instance, Robin has discovered years ago that, that if, if I've had toast for breakfast, the crumbs have a tendency to meno on the counter, right? right? They, they remain. And that's not, that's not entirely what meno means, but you can see that, okay, well, that remains. But, but this is speaking of something a, a little bit deeper than that type of a concept. And we see it used uh, repeatedly in, in John chapter 15, verses 4 through 10. It's actually used 10 times in those seven verses, this word meno. John chapter 15, verse 4. He says, abide in me, meno. Remain in me. So you see, right away, I, I could stop there, right? We begin to see that the idea of remaining is, is more than just having to be, having, happening to be there. But there is a continual presence and a living in there. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, and dries up, and they gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see the richness of the idea that Jesus 
abides forever. He continues forever. That it's his, he, he, he is not just there, but he is living. He is dwelling. He is continuing forever. Why? Because he conquered death. Because death no longer has any sway in his life. It has no power. It has been vanquished entirely. I love the, the uh, great article written by John Owen. The death of death and the death of Christ. Amen. It was as he tasted that death, that death itself was destroyed and conquered, and he now rules over it so he can continue forever. He abides forever. He remains forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We look there usually every Easter. It's good to be reminded of that passage uh, at other times as well in verses 54 through 57. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because he has conquered death. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Perfect is a word, and, and I talk about it many different times, and, and we're, we're, we're aware that it means to be complete. It's the Greek word telos, a telescope, to see the end. It's the end. It's, it's, it's to, to reach that which it is designed to reach, is what the word perfect means. Jesus is the perfect high priest. And if we look at the plan of God, I think we can see something of that, that man was made alive by God. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. But then he sinned, and he experienced death. And so this, this all changed, but God designed him to be alive. And because man has sinned and tasted death, God demanded and appointed priests who would stand between man and God. And these priests would intercede on behalf of the man, but these priests too would also die. But Jesus, who comes and is the high priest, he himself offers himself as that sacrifice. He himself tastes death, but because he is life itself, death cannot hold him, and he rises from the grave and has conquered death because he is the perfect high priest. He is the one that is the end. He is the goal. He is the one who is able to finish our salvation completely and fully. It's what he has accomplished. Jesus conquered death. He remains forever because he conquered death. And because he remains forever, he intercedes for you. He continually intercedes for you. Notice what it says in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'm reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis's words about sin, that, that, that we have this strange idea that time cancels out our sin, right? That if we just wait enough time, it, it's just not as big a deal anymore. Some of us maybe have the idea, too, that when we get to heaven, it'll be great because we'll all focus on Jesus and no one will know what our sin is, right? 
But you know, if, if my sin is hidden, it seems unfair. Because isn't the Bible forever? We could have a hearty amen. Okay, We could even do it Presbyterian if you want. Okay, if you want to. Right? Amen. The Bible's forever. So in heaven, the Bible will be there, right? The Bible contains some of the sins of King David, does it not? doesn't seem hardly fair that his sins would be there, but ours aren't, right? You say, well, I'm not as important as him. We can hope. We can hope. I have a feeling that something else is going to be the case, that, that our sin will be known. But it won't be a problem there. You know why? Because Jesus continually intercedes with the Father. Because Jesus remains in his human form. Jesus continues with the scars upon his hands and the scars upon his feet. And he stands before the Father and he lifts up those scars so that God the Father is always forgiving us. Always. Because Jesus always intercedes for us. Because Jesus himself is continually ministering to us in that way. And that's a part of the role of the high priest. Remember there was uh, the, the time in, in Israel's history in which they got discontent and they looked around and they saw all of their, their neighboring nations. And all the other nations, they, they've got kings. And they said to Samuel, we're kind of like this second-rate nation. What's the deal? We don't have a king. We want a king like all the other nations. Make us a, a, a king like them. And so Samuel's a little perturbed and goes to God and God says, eh, it'll be all right. Go ahead. And so they have this interaction from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Let me just say, what wonderful pastoral advice. And, and as, we, as, we, as I talk to maybe the elders and other pastors, to just realize how important that is. You know, uh, he didn't belittle what was done. Yeah, you did, you did this great evil. It was, it was big. But then he says, but it doesn't have to define you. He says, then following, he says, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Yeah, you did that, but keep going. Don't, don't give up just because you failed. Keep moving forward. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they're futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, and this is a verse that I've taken to heart as a pastor. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Amen. He, he goes on. I just want to stop there and just, just remind us of the significance of, of what he's saying. Remember, Samuel is a priest. And as a priest, this is what he's saying to the people. As they've brought their sin to him, he says, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. If it would have been a sin for Samuel to stop praying for the people, how much more of a sin would it be if Jesus stopped interceding for us, his beloved? He's alive. 
so that he might make continual intercession for you. Romans 8.34 reminds us of that as Paul is wrestling with the possibility that he'd be cast out of heaven. And he's asked, what will separate us from God? And he says, who is the one who condemns? Who condemns you? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. It's the role that he plays as our priest. He continually intercedes for us. And our passage tells us who he intercedes for, does it not? Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God. Those who draw near to God, he intercedes for. Which reminds me of Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? For the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Twice in that verse, it talks about seeking after God. That reminder that we come to him. He intercedes for us that I might come to him and in coming to him, I know that he intercedes for me. The first proof is that he remains forever. He's the perfect high priest. We know that he remains forever. He's also the perfect high priest because he alone is qualified. The, in, in Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 14, um, and I'm just going to summarize that, but you can jot that down and, and, and look that up later on. We have the ordination of the priest and, and what had to be done for the priest to be ordained in the Old Testament. And it's, and it's a lengthy uh, ceremony, if you will, and it starts out that the high priests have to offer a sacrifice. And they had to offer two rams, and they had to offer a, a bread sacrifice. And this was necessary for them before anything else. So it started out, we've got to offer these sacrifices. Then they had to wash. Isn't that interesting? First the sacrifice, then the washing, then the ceremonial cleansing. Then... Uh, they had to be clothed and they had to put on the proper garment. And after they had on the proper garment, then they were anointed with oil. And then after they had on their garment and they had the anointed with oil, then they had to lay their hands upon the head of a bull. And this is when they would lay their hands on the head of the bull and they would confess their sins. And then that bull would be sacrificed. Now we have two sacrifices for these priests before they could ever function as a priest. They had to go through all of this, this ceremony, and then the blood of that bull would be put on their ear, on their thumb, and on their big toe. You know the significance of that? Neither do I. No idea whatsoever. But I'll bet it's important. <laughs> but they constantly wore the blood of the sacrifice as a perpetual reminder that this man who's going to be ordained to this holy office, this is what was required of them. Because it was a sinful man stepping into a holy office. But Jesus is different. Jesus is qualified for the office, not by sacrifices made for him, but because of his intrinsic value and who he was. Let's look at the qualifications as they're laid out for us, showing us, first of all, that he's morally perfect. We look at uh, verse 26, and, and, and we see that, that he's morally perfect. 
for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now look at the list. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. First of all, holy. The usual word for holy is hagios. Hagios. That's not the word that's here. It's hasios. Hasios, which, is, which has a, a little bit different meaning than just hagios. Hagios means in and of itself to be set apart. We are saints. We are holy ones because we've been set apart. But here he chooses a word that conveys a little bit different of an idea. It means that he is right by intrinsic character. He's right by intrinsic character. There are other words that, are, that use for, for righteous, like dikaios. Dikaios means you're right by conforming to a standard. But hasias means that you're right by your own intrinsic character, not by your conformity to another standard, which is fascinating when we think about that concerning God. God isn't right because he conforms to some external form of rightness. God establishes the external form of rightness by his own character. So Jesus is holy in this way. He's also innocent. Innocent is, is a word that, that combines uh, uh, the word kakas, which means bad or evil, with the alpha privative, which means not. So it means he's not bad, he's not evil. Not only is he holy, but there's no badness in him, there's no evil in him, there's no mixture that he's completely separated from that. When you think of badness, you would say of him, it's not there. And so you'd have to put that alpha privative, that, that not, the alpha privative, the, like we have a theist, and an atheist, right? And, and we understand what that means. And so you've got kakas and you've got akakas. And akakas is what Jesus is, that there's no bad, none in him. There's no evil. He's innocent. And then he's undefiled. Once again, the use of the alpha privative, but this time meaning he's not morally tainted. Um, some of you know that I, I spent about 10 years selling paint. Um, I loved paint. I loved selling paint. It was a joy. Um, some parts weren't. We had a colorant. It was an external yellow. It was AXX is how we designated this, this exterior yellow. And you have to have a special yellow when it's exterior because it, it fades so easily. And so we would be mixing uh, colors. And AXX was unique in that it dried really fast. And, and so one of the problems that you'd have is we had a manual dispenser. And so you'd, you'd, you'd pull the lever down and you'd, you'd go down. And if you weren't careful with AXX, every time you used it, you had to kind of remount the little spout where it come out of, because if you didn't, the AXX went like this and all over the place, and you have it on you. And there was this special quality of AXXs. You would, you, you would wipe it up and you'd get every rag and you'd try to get it all up and you set the rag and then you'd reach over here to touch something and you put AXX there. Somehow it got on your hand between. And then you try to wipe that up, and then it ends up here. And it would just spread like wild. It was just all over you all the time. And no matter what, you could look at someone and say, oh, tinted something yellow today, didn't you? Because they've just got it all over. It just did that all the time. It was just this horrible color. We had more mistinted paints because of AXX than any other because it was just this, this persnickety. And, it, and I would tell my folks, I said, it reminds me of sin. Right? Isn't that how sin is in our life? We think we get it all cleaned up, but we've actually still got it, and we touch something else, and we move it over there, and we move it all, and all of a sudden we're just all over the place, but not Jesus. He's completely untainted by sin. He's morally perfect. He's undefiled. And he's 
not only morally perfect, he is God. For he is separated from sinners. And the word that's, that's translated there, separated from sinners, is a, is a word, it's a perfect participle. Forgive me. The perfect tense in Greek is the idea of a completed action with ongoing effect. I've talked about that at different places. In, in uh, Ephesians, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. That's the perfect. It happened at a point in time and it has ongoing effect. Jesus on the cross said to telestai, it is finished, meaning it's a completed action, but it's got ongoing effect. And he says that he was separated from sinners, that it is this completed action that always is. There is always an infinite gap between Jesus' nature and the nature of sinners. He's separated because he's God and he's exalted above the heavens. The word is exalted is simply a form of the word hyper. He's hyper. He's hyper exalted. He's hyper above the heavens. He's just... He's just, he's just so much more than we can even imagine because he is, he is God. He is God in the flesh. Hebrews 1.3 uses this uh, same word as it speaks of Jesus, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on hyper, on high. That's the picture. That's what Jesus is. He's exalted above the heavens. Does it remind you a little bit of Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He alone is qualified because he is morally perfect and he is God. The two proofs that we've looked at so far of Jesus being the perfect high priest are that he remains forever and that he alone is qualified. And the third is that he paid the price. He paid the price. In the Old Testament, there were daily sacrifices that had to be offered for sin. There were daily sacrifices. An individual would recognize that I've sinned today and I need to offer a sacrifice. And so each day, there were different sacrifices that had to be offered. There was also annual sacrifices. Every year, we had to offer the, the, the sacrifice of atonement on the Day of Atonement. Every year, we had to offer, offer the Passover sacrifice. And what this reminded the people of is that it was never enough, right? It was never enough. We have to bring another sacrifice tomorrow. I've got to bring another sacrifice next year. It's never enough. I'm always aware that I need another sacrifice. Each sacrifice reminded us of a greater sacrifice. Look at verse 27. Who does not need daily, like those other high priests, to offer up sacrifices for first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. I just want us to meditate on that term once for all for a moment. Once for all. I think that means once for all time. 
Once for all time. He didn't have to do it again. He has finished the sacrifice. It's a part of what our idea of communion is. We don't believe that Jesus is offering himself anew each time we celebrate communion. We celebrate communion remembering that he has died once for all and we can use bread and, and uh, grape juice because we recognize that his sacrifice was once for all. It was once for all time. I remember one time I was uh, witnessing to a man in the paint store. Uh, I was a fellow worker. And I'd been witnessing to him for some time. And we got into Romans at one point, and we were, we were talking about Jesus' death. And he wanted to know, well, how do people in the Old Testament uh, get saved? And so we were walking through that. And he goes, oh, oh, so like, so like his death was retroactive? Is that what you're saying? I said, you know what? That's close enough. Let's go with that. Sure. His death was retroactive. That, 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 that covers And it kind of fits, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was a death once for all time. For the sins committed before and the sins committed ever or after. Forever. For all of those sins. It's, 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 a, it's a once for all time. And it's also once for all your sins. Once for all your sins. I don't know what it was. I think it was a personal devotional time a number of years ago that I, I was just thinking about Jesus' prayer and I was looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, um, it uh, tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I was thinking about that. The joy set before him. Hmm. Let me look back at the cross. As I was thinking of the cross and, and the joy set before him, well, the suffering of the cross, and in, a, in a very real sense, is most clearly seen in his crying out to the Father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I began to think about that. I thought, you know, that's a prayer of Jesus. He's asking God the Father why he's suffering. And I can't imagine the Father not answering Jesus, right? Jesus is God. And he's there. And I believe that the Father answered that. I believe that Jesus, in his deity and his humanity, at that moment knew exactly why the Father was uh, withdrawing from him. And what was shown to him was every one of our sins. Because if he missed one, we're still lost. So every one of the sins was placed upon Jesus, and he was aware of it. And he suffered in that state, aware of each sin and the wrath that was brought upon him for each of those sins. And every one of them is given to him. And then he lifts up his voice and he says, it's finished. As he saw the joy, he saw you and me in heaven with him. It's finished. This is it. It's now paid in full. Evangelism Explosion uses an illustration in which they talk about the word tetelestai, which is perfect, but it was also a, 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 a word that would be stamped on a bill when the last payment was made. It's finished. The payment has been made in full for your sin and for mine. Will you believe We don't 
traditionally have altar calls at Presbyterian churches. Um, altar calls became a, a, a way of manipulating people to get them to do things and to feel bad, and, and, and so we don't like that. But that doesn't mean we don't have invitations. I'm offering an invitation to each and every person here to look closely. Okay? Our, again, our teen Sunday school class has been looking at uh, some of the, the challenges that the book of Revelation spells out to those early churches and how they struggled. They thought they were okay. And Jesus is saying, you're not okay. You're not okay at all. And they had to be able to look and they had to be able to see that, that I thought that I was fine. I've, I've been going to church. I've been doing everything. I, I, I thought I was doing just fine. But Jesus said, I'm wretched and poor and blind and naked. Maybe I need to listen to that. And, and maybe he's piercing your heart. And just see, maybe he's been working for the last few weeks and he's just drawing you to say, I want to believe today. I want to put my trust in Jesus. And that means, first of all, that I believe that I need him to pay the price. I can't do it. There's nothing I can offer to him to take away from my sins. I can't do it. I need him to pay that price. I can't trust that God will just overlook my sins because he's just. He could never do that. I need him to pay the price for me. And I also believe that he did. That his death is all I need. I won't make my salvation better by, by reading my Bible or praying more. My salvation is complete because of what Jesus has done and I'm going to believe that and I'm going to live my life based on that principle that Jesus died for my sins. Will you believe today, please? I invite every person here to put their faith in Jesus this day. Maybe going from the sublime to the ridiculous. There's a, a movie our family enjoys called I, Robot. Those of you who have seen it said, yeah, that's to the ridiculous. Thank you. Um, there, there's just a scene in that movie that we quote to one another from, from time to time. And it's a scene in which one of the robotic engineers is talking to the police officer. And he says that, she says, that a robot could no more commit murder than a man could walk on water. And kind of under his breath, the police officer, Will Smith, says, well, you know, there was this one guy a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We say things like, well, nobody's perfect, right? Right? That, that's a common saying. Well, nobody's perfect. Well, there was this one guy long time ago who was you know what he was the perfect high priest because he remains forever because he alone is qualified and because he paid the price will you trust him let's pray father thanks for your word and the power of your word Thank you so much more for Jesus. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for dying for us.